ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Miami Beach is calling your name to the biggest ETF industry event of the year, Exchange. Exchange is engineered to deliver high value by providing a space to learn, interact, and network with the most influential thought leaders in the industry. Built with financial advisors, not just for them. Go to exchangeetf.com to register and enter Prime for 50% off your registration. Again, that's exchangeetf.com and apply the discount code PRIME for 50% off. See you in February. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, great show this week. Joining me will be Dave Nodding, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. You may have seen this. Uh, last week, I released my much-anticipated 2022 ETF predictions. These are posted at ETFeducator.com. Uh, but Dave, as he's been known to do from time to time, push back on a couple of these out on uh, Twitter. We went back and forth a little bit. But we thought it might be fun to bring the debate uh, to you live and in color here on ETF Prime. So we'll actually go through all of my predictions, and then you can find out why Dave is a bit skeptical on a couple of them. Which, by the way, I've got to mention, I am hitting like 80% on my ETF predictions over the past four years. I'm going to be sure to remind Dave of that before he tries to uh, put a clown suit on me. I, I don't think he knows what he's up against. But in any event, I'll start there. I'll then be joined by two other excellent guests to talk crypto, gold, commodities. I'll be joined by Jeremy Schwartz, Global Chief Investment Officer at Wisdom Tree, and Wade Gunther, Managing Partner at Wilshire Phoenix. So Wisdom Tree is involved in a number of crypto initiatives. Of course, they have filed for a spot Bitcoin ETF. Uh, I feel like they're pushing pretty hard on that. They were also the first ETF issuer to actually own Bitcoin futures in an ETF. Some people may not realize that. They actually beat ProShares in terms of uh, holding Bitcoin futures in an ETF wrapper. Uh, they took an allocation in their Enhanced Commodity Strategy ETF. They also filed last year for a treasury fund that would track shareholder ownership on the blockchain. And they recently partnered with Ritholtz Wealth Management on the creation of a crypto index. So we'll discuss all of that. And if we have time, which I think is highly questionable, I also want to ask Jeremy about their most recently launched ETF, 
which uses a concept called return stacking to invest in gold in a more capital efficient manner. And then on the topic of gold, Wilshire Phoenix has an ETF that rebalances between physical gold and cash depending upon market conditions. Uh, the goal is to actually try and outperform the spot return of, of, of gold. So I'll have uh, Wade Gunther explain that. Uh, Wilshire also has a Bitcoin trust filed with the SEC. It's not an ETF. Uh, it's similar in structure to the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. But you may recall that Wilshire did file for a Bitcoin and Treasury ETF back in uh, early 2019. That was shot down by the SEC. And I know Wade has a lot of strong opinions on the SEC's current positioning around a spot Bitcoin ETF. So we'll get into all of that as well. Fun show, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends, Dave Nottig. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. By keeping rates so low, that is in effect driving investor money into the equity market. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, welcome back to the podcast. Another year of ETF Prime. It's uh, hard to believe. Oh my gosh, what a year. It's like just, I mean, every piece of this last year was just nuts. I'm really looking forward to what we're going to do uh, going forward in 22. But boy, the ETF industry is on fire, isn't it? No question. So look, we're going to get into my 2022 predictions in a moment. But I, th I think to your point, before we do that, there was some ETF news last week that I th thought kind of flew under the radar a little bit which was that O'Share, so Kevin O'Leary's ETF company, uh, Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank, they announced a strategic deal with SS&C Alps Advisors. And w when I saw that, you, you know, that got me to thinking, if someone like Kevin O'Leary feels the need to look for additional ways to, to ramp up ETF distribution, that's clearly a big challenge for everyone, right? Especially anyone not in the top, say, 15 or 20 ETF issuers. And I am going to tie this into one of my uh, ETF predictions as well. But did you have any quick thoughts on this deal? I, I know we always like to talk about how distribution is king in the ETF space. Is it that simple? Yeah, I really do think it is that simple. I, you know, I think you know you look at a you look at a fund suite like the O'Shares lineup. Obviously, some very successful products in there. They've done well gathering assets. So this isn't a this isn't a case of you know somebody tr gave it their best shot and now they're looking for a hail mary. This was already a pretty successful franchise built largely on the back of O'Leary's brand. Obviously, that's great. Um, the challenge is when you want to get really serious and you want to start talking to financial advisors about making long-term allocations across their book, you want to start getting platform access at the UBSs and Wells Fargo's of the world, that takes real work. And it's not just making phone calls, it's understanding the system. It's understanding how the game of distributing ETFs to large advisor groups really works. And you really do need somebody who gets that and who is dedicated to doing that work. That's not something you just staff up if you're a small company, right? That's a, that is like significant talent, often with a wholesaling force that's covering not just national accounts, but actually getting out there and being regional. And as we start thinking about really coming out of the pandemic, 
for the love of God, I hope this summer, uh, you know, I think we're all going to be back out in the world, right? We want to do that. And so having a wholesaling force, having a real distribution strategy makes a lot of sense. So going to somebody like SSNC Alps makes a ton of sense. Obviously, one of the best in the business there. But we're also seeing a lot of upstart distribution firms do very well. Uh, you know, Jillian Del Signore, who you know from uh, is from Flex Distribution. You know, that's another great model where they're acting as the distributor for a lot of small companies at once. I think distribution is changing, but it's never been more important. Okay, so that is perfect because I mentioned tying this into one of my ETF predictions, which, by the way, I I think most listeners know I make these five predictions at the beginning of every year. Uh, Dave, I do have a pretty good track record, by the way, just FYI. I don't make five predictions every year. But I uh, I, I did post these last week, and you responded on Twitter that my fourth and fifth predictions uh, seem like a bit of a crapshoot, and you offered some some other commentary around those, which we'll get to in a minute. But one of my predictions, which I, I think you agreed with, is that there will be a massive independent ETF issuer boom this year, which, yeah. right, that, that really continues a trend we saw take shape last year, a, a ton of new issuers coming to market. So I, I have two questions for you here. One, just to confirm, and, and I think you do, but, but do you agree this trend will continue, this boom? And then number two, going back to this O'Shears deal, how do you think newer, smaller issuers find success? Because I do stand by my prediction that there will be a huge boom here, but that doesn't mean success, right? Anyone can launch products. That doesn't make them viable longer term. So how, how do these new issuers solve the distribution challenge that even someone like Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary is acknowledging? Well, yeah, I mean, to be fair, he's acknowledging it from a different platform than most people are. Most of us don't have CNBC shows. So, uh, look, you're absolutely right. We are going to continue to see this boom of independent issuers and and big players getting into the market. I just think we're going to continue to see this raft of new product from new issuers show up. The smaller folks were coming in. A lot of times these are RAAs that maybe have a billion or two on their books and they've been running a particular strategy for a while. They want to roll that into an ETF so that they can both enhance their distribution to other people who aren't their clients, but also just to make their lives easier with their clients, right? A whole lot easier to rebalance your strategy if it's the same in the strategy for everybody inside an ETF. So we're going to see a ton of those. To your question about how do they crack that distribution nut, there are a lot of folks out there really addressing this problem now. Like, obviously, you know, the work that we do at ETF Trends, we help issuers do that as well. We sort of in the business of connecting, you know, cool investors with cool ideas. So that works fine. But we also still need to recognize bodies matter. Um, And so whether it's deals like this one with O'Shares, whether it's folks, uh, you know, using some of the third-party sort of umbrella platforms, exchange-traded concepts, uh, ETF Architect, Toroso, right? All of them have an approach to distribution. Those efforts are going to get bigger and bigger as those firms get bigger and bigger. So I think it's pretty exciting. It is. There's just there's a lot there for a smaller ETF issuer from the traditional marketing side of things to social media trying to get in front of advisors. I think navigating the gatekeepers at wirehouses and, and, and just large advisory firms in general, that's still a challenge. So, uh, you know, there there is a lot that has to be done on that side to get your ETF to market. One thing that I think on the positive side, you, you may have seen this, Bloomberg had a stat last week that $280 billion went into ETFs, not named iShares, Vanguard, or State Street. <laughs> well, you know, to me, that speaks to the opportunity here, right? That there is a growing pie and so even for these smaller issuers getting into the space, which we, we, I think we are going to see a boom here, I, I just think that speaks to the, the opportunity set for them. That, and that's going to continue to grow, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the 80-20 rule of, of flows, I think, is going to be tough to push back on. We saw a consistent allocation into cheap beta throughout the year. Um, you know, we, we've, we've actually – I sort of did a chart on this. We have a bit of a timeline over two years this movement from, say, the beginning of 2020, where it was any shiny object got got a bid, whether it was ARC funds, whether it was thematic funds, a lot of high expense, high profile product got sold in early 2020. And consistently ever since the rise or the re-rise of cheap beta has just it's been in, inexorable. It just keeps going on. So we ended the year actually with the strongest allocations to cheap beta we've seen over the last two years. Uh, and looking at our research data, you know, tracking what advisors are researching, that's followed as well. Less and less shiny objects, more funds under 25 basis points getting researched and bought. All right. Let me quickly tee up two of my other predictions, which I, I think you agreed with both of these. I'm not entirely sure. You, you can tell me. The first is that an Ethereum futures ETF will be approved in 2022. And the second is that ESG ETF closures will spike. Uh, just to be clear, are you on board with both of those? No. I, any other comments? Uh, I'm skeptical on both of them. I, I think they're reasonable predictions. I'm not, they're not ones I'd make giant bets on. I think you're probably pretty close to the over-under line on both of those. <laughs> um, but, you know, look, Ethereum, I think that's going to depend much more on what goes on in the underlying market than any particular thing that happens in Washington. Uh, if we start seeing, you know, the flippening for real in terms of volumes on things like the futures exchanges, uh, then I think that that could be real. But right now, the ETH futures are just simply a lot less liquid than the Bitcoin futures. And so I could see some skepticism. So I think that's going to depend what happens in the underlying more than whether the SEC wakes up and has a good morning. So I think that one is, I'm a little on the fence of. Around ESG, you know, boy, the, the number of products that I know are coming to market is still very large. Um, ESG research has come down a little bit in our pool of advisors that we track. Um, but the flows were still phenomenal for ESG. I mean, we, what did we cross? Something like $40 billion in flows last year. Um, it's part of almost every conversation I have with an actual rank-and-file advisor. That it's, it's a conversation they are having with clients, even if they're not putting money in. So I don't see quite the impetus for this rash of closures that you might see. The reason why I'm making that prediction, you, you mentioned a large number of products coming to market. That's why. I think the market is always or is already oversaturated. And this but, flood of products coming on, I don't think there's enough organic grassroots retail demand. So you mentioned the assets last year. And look, all, all the money coming into these products, it all counts the same. But a lot of the assets that went into ESG ETFs are from large pensions, these institutional investors. Yes. It's it's some of the larger ETF issuers making allocations within their model portfolios. This isn't being driven at the retail level. And, and look, I, I run an advisory firm. It's a smaller advisory firm, but we have a very wide swath of clients, everybody from you know young to older, uh, male, female, different political affiliations. We're, we're not seeing any demand. There's just not... It's, it's not a desire. And we, we can have the conversation. You know, I think as an advisor, it's important for us to convey the different options on the market and, and make sure investors know what is out there. There's just not demand for it. And to me, I, you know, it's my own personal experience, but I use that as a proxy for what the demand is like in the, in the entire market. Again, our, our advisory yeah. firm, it's a wide swath of people. This isn't some narrow I, subset. I think the big... The big difference there, Nate, to be blunt, is that you run a pretty much take-all-comers practice. And when I look, to, when I talk to advisors that are really seeing the movement, it's because they built their practice to to look for that. Right? They're they're hanging ESG over their name on the shingle outside their door. 
And I've seen a lot of advisors be very, very successful at gathering initial assets, particularly younger startup advisors that are starting with, you know, a $10 million book of friend and family money. Um, I've seen these firms genuinely grow quickly because they lean heavily into ESG. So there's, I think there's an enormous self-selection there. If you're, if you're somebody of means and you really care about ESG, you're probably looking for an ESG-centric advisor. But this is where I wonder if direct indexing comes into play. And, and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. I don't think direct indexing is some sort of ETF killer overall. But I do think it could be a real significant threat to ESG ETFs in particular. Because I look at the ESG ETFs that are out there. Um, you know, and, and, and this is intentional, but there are a lot that aren't very differentiated from yep. the, the broad benchmarks, right? And for the ones that are more differentiated, there's no one-size-fits-all approach out there that even if you crawl into the holdings, there can be a lot of disagreement around oh, what yeah. constitutes ESG and what doesn't. Well, guess what handles this much better? Direct indexing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree with that. I just think that this isn't the year we're going to see the assets in a sort of mass affluent DI product uh, matter enough to, to chip, chip, chip away at, at ETFs. Uh, in two years, I think I'm 100% with you. I just think you're a year early on that. I think this year you're going to continue to see these ESG-centric advisors looking at some of the interesting product that's out there, whether that's the more uh, sort of benchmark-hugging type stuff, the, you know, the ESG-aware series from BlackRock, um, or whether it's something that's you know, much more focused on a particular angle, like engine number one and vote, right? which is not trying to buy and sell different stocks. It's just doing something different with the votes. I, I think all of these things are interesting. I think this is going to be a year of growth. And I think once we see Schwab's DI platform launch, which, you know, realistically call it towards the end of the year because delays happen, who knows. But sometime this year that's going to come out, people are going to start paying a lot of attention to it. And I think 2023 is going to be the year of explosive sort of 100,000 account minimum level DI. Yeah, it's very possible I'm early on this one. I've been early on other predictions. I think I've been calling for a Bitcoin ETF to be approved since like 2017. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I think I got you beat with my non-transparent active approval, which I think I had six years running <laughs> yeah uh, too close to it um, okay let me let me get to two other predictions you called me out on uh, which were that ETFs would finally begin penetrating 401ks and that the Vanguard share class patent would become a hot topic and before you offer your takes um, I, I do want to give you just a little bit of my thinking here so with the 401ks, I see two drivers, and the first is very basic, which is simply that the mousetrap to allow ETFs and 401ks has been built. Again, not to talk about my advisory firm, but we do it there. We offer all ETF 401ks. It's easy. It's seamless. And to me, uh, as more advisory firms become aware of that, that'll just naturally lead to more ETFs and 401ks. So that's the first catalyst. The second catalyst, which I think is, is much bigger this year, are mutual fund to ETF conversions, which, as you know, if you are a decent-sized mutual fund company and you have assets uh, in 401k plans, that's a problem with these conversions. 401ks become sort of a roadblock. And so my prediction is that that will naturally lead to more fund companies trying to problem-solve around getting 401 or ETFs and 401ks. Just just more conversations around this, and, and, and ultimately that will lead to greater adoption of ETFs and 401ks. So, so what's your sort of counter to that? 
Um, so look, yeah, the, the record keeping issue is, is a largely solved one, but that doesn't get past the, the, the major hurdle, which I still see is why, right? So one of the biggest advantages of ETFs is their tax efficiency, utterly irrelevant in the 401k market. One of the other great advantages of ETFs is they don't have any hidden fees baked into them for the most part, right? They, you know what you're paying, you get what you pay for, and none of that money's sloshing around the system doing stuff you don't know about. Well, the entire 401k industry is built on the back of 12B1 fees funding record keeping so that consumers, the actual end investors, don't feel like they're being charged for it. So the employer can act like they're giving 401k services to their clients when in fact the clients are paying for them themselves at a 12B1 fees. That economic incentive is so powerful that unless you have, say, uh, you know, an employee relations board inside a company that's managing the 401k, which does happen in very large companies and certainly in unionized shops, um, then, then that's a different story. But for the average company, there is some CEO, COO, HR person who's in charge of the 401k that's working just fine. They probably already put in a few index options years and years ago. Almost everybody's putting all their money in the target date funds anyway. Why would they upset that apple cart? So a new 401k for a newly forming business, sure, why wouldn't you just go into ETFs and everybody pays their $40 a year record keeping fee and everything's fine? But the real money is in the existing 401k market, and I don't see the impetus. I see huge roadblocks to converting a billion-dollar 401k plan. I think those are all excellent points. A couple of things I'll mention there. First of all, you mentioned the tax efficiency of ETFs not translating to 401ks. Well, of course, that doesn't translate to IRAs either, and that hasn't stopped investors yeah. from putting billions of dollars of ETFs in their in their IRAs. In terms of the compensation structure, I completely agree with you. I can't tell you how many... 401k plans that I've come across that are loaded up on expensive commission-based mutual funds. It's it's unbelievable. The problem with that is that I think plan sponsors, so the employers, um, they're realizing more and more that, hey, they're fiduciaries here. And they have an obligation to make sure that the 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 fund options in the plan are reasonable, uh, both from just an investment standpoint, but also from a cost standpoint. I think there's just a lot more focus now on the investment options in 401ks. There have been a ton of lawsuits. I mean, you go Google 401k lawsuits out there, you'll you'll get a whole you know set of options or stories popping up. So I do think the mindset there is changing a little bit more. Maybe it, it's it's a little slower again than what I think is going to happen. But just I, I think more employers are focusing on this. And in terms of some of the, the larger plans that have, you know, target date funds or even index-based mutual funds, which I think are, are great uh, options for investors, I agree those will be a bit tougher to, to crack, right? I think change is hard with those types of plans just to begin with. Um, but I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to name the company. I have a close family member who works with one of the largest companies in the U.S., and Dave, I think you would blush at the the, the the mutual fund options in the plan. They're atrocious. Oh no! So, so not I, everybody. Me, I, yeah, there's a lot I, of bad me. options out there. I, I I get it. I've seen some of those things too. Look, I mean, you could just go to ADP and sign up for whatever their default. You know, you can be one of our employees thing and see the list of funds you could include. It's ridiculous, right? But but the 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 market is driven by large plans using target date funds. We're over two point two trillion dollars in target date funds right now. That's where the money goes. There are no target date ETFs anymore. So like there's a just a huge disconnect there. I get what you're saying, Nate. I just think that the inertia for any for large conversions of four hundred one k plans is just overwhelming. And just real quick, because I do want to talk briefly about the Vanguard patent. 
my, my point in terms of mutual fund to ETF conversions, if you look at a lot of the companies that are in the 401k plan space, not all, but a lot of them are larger mutual fund companies. Mm-hmm. So do you think this desire to convert mutual funds to ETFs, even if that's a little bit of a longer process, will have those companies looking at the the 401k space to see, okay, well, how do we get ETFs into these plans? I mean, do you, well, let's, do you, let's, let's go just ahead. go ahead and peel back the, uh, peel back the, uh, the bandaid on the Vanguard patent, because that's really what your, your thesis here is. And I get the thesis, right? Your thesis is, Hey, I'm a growth fund of America. I'm in every 401k plan in the country. Wouldn't it be convenient if I could just slap an ETF share class on it? And all of a sudden I've got all of that track record I can carry along with me. I can start using the ETF to deal with my taxes on the overall pool, all the stuff that Vanguard has been able to get away with. Sure. If you could flip the switch, all of those folks would love to do that. Um, I think that, you know, should that be doable and should it be easy, I could see it catching on. But the important problem with that is that none of that lives underneath the ETF rule. And the ETF rule is what's given a lot of these firms the sort of regulatory runway and, frankly, the internal political capital to be able to get into the ETF market, right? So if you're a big traditional player and you haven't been in the ETF market, it's not that you're dumb. It's not that like you, you didn't notice ETFs for the last 20 years, right? There were reasons why you weren't getting into the market. And a lot of them were just conservatism in their business plan. Uh, now that we can do this under the auspices of the ETF rule, that conservatism can, can, can live underneath a, a piece of ruling that doesn't involve exceptions. And that makes people nervous. However, if you're going to go chase the Vanguard patent, i.e. you're going to go try to do something that would infringe on the patent to the day after it expires, now you're in a whole, whole new greenfield. Nobody's filed one of those things in over 20 years. You have no idea what the SEC would say. No, I think you hit on... The- Exactly where I was heading, which just to to state the obvious here, I mean, the Vanguard patent, I think, does solve a lot of problems for fund companies and that they can keep their mutual fund cash cows. And instead of, you know, launching clone ETFs or doing mutual fund conversions, they just launch an ETF share class. That seems much cleaner to me. Now, one thing I will acknowledge with these two predictions, the the ETFs and 401ks, and then just that the Vanguard patent will become more of a, a topic of conversation those two predictions are a bit at odds with each other, right? In that if a fund company wants to easily solve the 401k issue, that might be best be uh, or might best be done by taking the share class approach. Uh, because if a fund company does that, they, that means they can just keep their mutual funds in 401ks, which that wouldn't then help my case of ETFs penetrating the space. So, I, <laughs> right, I acknowledge the uh, the uh, inconsistency so, so in there. other words, you'll be right on one. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I'm a diversifier. I like to hedge my bets. But, well, you know what? My, my, my prediction was that the share class patent uh, would be a huge topic of conversation. So well, which, that's which, true. Which, that, I, there's no question you're going to keep asking me questions about it all year long. <laughs> so, so just to, just to, about a minute left. I mean, what do you think happens here with, with a Vanguard share share class patent? Do you think more fund companies are going to explore this later in the year, early next year? I mean, just just set set the table. What do you think happens here? Uh, so my prediction would be that it's not going to be a, a BlackRock or a State Street that decides to wade in here. I actually don't even think it's going to be one of the sort of bigger funds that we might think about, like a Gabelli or somebody like that. If somebody's going to challenge this patent, it's going to be some upstart that's going to use this as effectively part of their marketing campaign, right? They want to be they'll want to be seen as innovators. So I, I actually think it's more likely that some smaller shop that's 40 or 50 down the leaderboard that happens to have a couple of mutual funds that they don't care that much about 
might wade in here because they think it would generate interest in their platform. I actually think that's a pretty smart idea. Somebody should probably go do that. But it's not going to be, I don't think it's going to be a, a state street. It's going to be somebody with a $3 billion complex way down the leaderboard. Well, I can't wait to see all, how uh, all of this plays out. I, I got to tell you, you and I should start doing some side bets on this stuff. I think yeah. amp up the fund a little bit. Put them out on the blockchain. Right? There we go. But, we have uh, binary options going. Hey, thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me every time. That was Dave Nottig, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainably related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of the progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. My next guest is Jeremy Schwartz, Global Chief Investment Officer at Wisdom Tree, who currently offers 75 ETFs in the U.S., nearly $50 billion in assets. And one of the areas I feel like they're really leading the charge on is crypto and crypto education. I'm honestly not sure there's another ETF issuer out there putting more resources into the crypto space currently than Wisdom Tree. And uh, Jeremy's now on the line with me from Philadelphia. Jeremy, always great connecting. Thanks for taking the time. Neat. Well, thank you for the incredible shout. That was a honor. We aspire to your your comment. We want to be the leading ETF firm managing this transition to crypto, Web3. All of that is part of the Wisdom Tree ethos here. Uh, so I thanks for the uh, the recognition there. Well, and in terms of Wisdom Tree's push into crypto, I want to go through this list for, for listeners, and I'm probably missing something, but this this is impressive. So you've had multiple Bitcoin ETF filings, right, trying to bring a spot Bitcoin ETF to market. You were actually the first issuer to hold Bitcoin futures in an ETF, which we'll discuss here in a bit. Uh, I, I don't think many people are aware of that. Wisdom Tree also had an Ether futures filing ETF last year. Uh, I, I believe that's been withdrawn for now, but still. And then just continuing to look down the list here, I mean, you recently partnered with Ritholtz Wealth Management on a crypto index. We'll talk about that as well. I know there's a partnership and investment with OnRamp, who's helping bring crypto and crypto education to financial advisors. There was another filing last year for the Wisdom Tree Digital Short-Term Treasury Fund, which this would actually uh, hold U.S. Uh, short-term U.S. treasuries, but the ownership of the fund's shares would be tracked and recorded on the blockchain. Uh, you have a substantial European crypto ETF presence, including crypto index ETPs. Why has crypto uh, become such a focus for, for Wisdom Tree? What's driving that? You know, it's that is a long list, Nate. It's amazing. Is, uh, impressive, um, in my view. The um, It's interesting. Our, we started our own exploration years ago. Our CEO said, 
what could do to ETFs, what ETFs did to mutual funds. And we have a strategy team uh, that meets regularly to talk about big picture initiatives at the firm, where are we making our investments, where are we going to try to disrupt ourselves. And one of the questions that came back was the functionality of the blockchain could be a transformational, disruptive technology that could you know, in, in time, do what ETFs did to mutual funds. Now, if you think about that statement, mutual funds today are still dominating 30 years after ETFs. Mutual funds still dominate ETFs from an asset perspective. It's not to say ETFs are going to be less important to us over time, but it's how do you cast your future and where do you want to make your investments? And so we do believe in the power of the blockchain to unlock a lot of different uh, things in the financial ecosystem. So we're, you're, to your point on going to the infrastructure, we made an investment in a firm called Securency to help us with comp- uh, compliance and infrastructure, um, what we're calling regulated DeFi or responsible DeFi is some of our investments in currency and what they're going to help enable us. That's part of that tokenization of traditional financial assets, like bringing treasuries to the blockchain is part of that. Um, but also, you've obviously seen investors want direct exposure to assets like Bitcoin, Ether. You know, uh, we're, we're a very large commodities manager in Europe. Some of the the idea if Bitcoin is the new generation's gold, given that we are one of the top five gold managers in the world, it would be irresponsible not to be providing exposure to Bitcoin uh, to our shareholders. And so we do have that exposure in Europe. The European regulators have been more flexible uh, and, and actually allowed more. So you could have Bitcoin Ether strategies in Europe, uh, spot strategies. We have baskets in Europe. Um, you know, the, when will the U.S. regulators allow a basket product? I mean, that is why we're going to on-ramp is, you know, to get direct SMAs. They are a platform that helps enable that. But you could see we are trying to provide a lot of different exposures. And, and it, to us, those are exposures. The crypto assets are exposures. We do, again, believe in the power of the blockchain is a bigger picture thing we're also very much investing against. Okay, so let's talk about a few of those things individually. And back in December, WisdomTree announced the launch of a crypto index in partnership with Ritholtz Wealth Management. And there are some other partnerships uh, here as well. So the index has been licensed to OnRamp, who you just mentioned. There'll be the uh, interface that allows advisors to invest in the crypto assets, uh, but, but behind this index. Those assets will be custodied at Gemini. What was the, uh, the background on this? Like, how did this all come together? Yeah, there's, it's, a, it's a small ecosystem, you could say. I mean, I got to meet Tyrone Ross, the CEO, uh, at actually an ETF.com conference in Florida. Um, you, you were probably there. Um, and we had dinner. I got to meet Tyrone, uh, and, and, and uh, the Ritholtz team was there actually also. And uh, I got to meet him, and, and through the course of our explorations of that bigger picture question I mentioned, I, I met with Tyrone and one of our heads of digital assets today, Will Peck, and started a relationship with Tyrone. He actually was my own on-ramp to Bitcoin. He got me uh, my first Bitcoin in SMA structure at Gemini, actually. And, and so I had been starting following him to develop that relationship. When he went to be CEO of OnRamp, um, they were looking for seed capital. We invested uh, as a seed investor in OnRamp. And, you know, one of the, the visions was that it is difficult for advisors to get the workflows integrated to their traditional planning software, reporting software. How do they see what their clients hold in crypto? So we believed in what Tyrone was uh, building with OnRamp, and so we invested. But, we, again, we wanted to help enable access, and you could see the regulators taking time to allow the spot products here in the U.S., 
Um, that doesn't mean uh, advisors want to wait for the ETS. I mean, they, their clients are doing it directly. And so advisors need solutions. That is what OnRamp can help provide. So they are a tech platform uh, that is going to be making it available, I think, over the next you know, coming weeks and months. Uh, it will be open to a much broader set of advisors. And uh, we're excited to be working with uh, the, the team at Red Holtz who very much wanted a solution for their clients. They were working on this at the exact same time. They were also friends and investors in OnRamp. Uh, and so it was just right place, right time. We came together to build this index and, and looking forward to bringing it out to a, a broader ecosystem soon. Yeah, and talk about the index itself. What, what's the basic construction here? So the idea is, you know, you want to be it, – it's trying to be crypto beta – um, we're not trying to do a lot of high active management, high turnover, and buying and selling these different assets. So it's going to be a relatively low turnover strategy. I think of uh, the formation of it, like the S&P has an index committee. They're picking the 500 leading stocks of the market. Um, we, we have an index committee. It's, a, it's composed of teams from our capital markets research uh, digital assets team um, who's looking at the crypto ecosystem. Certainly, you need a custodian to hold these assets. We're primarily working with Gemini, so Gemini's assets are a key starting point for that for that index. And and then we're going to be looking at what are the different sub themes you have. So we'll have um, layer one blockchains, layer two. You'll start getting things like the like the metaverse in there, gaming. Um, we've got um, DeFi, obviously, is a big category. And so as, you know, we, we don't want to be too overweight any one sub-theme, so we want good representation of the ecosystem. We are trying to be broader than just a Bitcoin fund. If you look at some of the strategies, uh, you know, they can be overly concentrated. And so this SMA structure, um, you're trying to get diversified exposure to the ecosystem and, and uh, get some of the potential of the newer up-and-coming crypto assets while also having heavy, meaningful representation in, in Bitcoin and Ether, which we would say are the, the two kings, obviously. I'm not sure I've ever asked you this before. I know we've talked uh, about crypto in the past, but as this index does become more widely available to advisors and, and ultimately individual investors, how exactly do you view the role of crypto in a portfolio at this point? Obviously, we're still yeah. very early stage, but high level, how should investors think about an allocation here? Well, that, we've done a few different things. So um, w- before we launched this direct uh, crypto-only SMA with OnRamp, we had, put to, we had um, worked with them on three different model portfolio series. Um, and in those, um, so we started with a pure Bitcoin allocation, a 5% Bitcoin allocation, that you know, in a 60-40 concept, was was funded from fixed income because actually um and you can see what happened to start the year fixed income has some challenges um and so you know we think the sort of 60 40 it, we were comfortable overweighting equities there um relative to that um from an 80 20 perspective which is the second model we worked on we took the five percent from equities in that model given re- different risk return dynamics there um and then we also looked, worked on a disruptive growth model that was mega trend growth oriented ETS, things like cloud and cyber and genomics, uh, fintech, with both Bitcoin and Ether equally weighted. So I think it depends on the goal. So you could have that, what I described up front, which is that Bitcoin could be gold, uh, like a new generation's gold, as a replacement type uh, structure there. And, and that's, you know, you could think about funding it from traditional stocks and bonds. And then you or you've got something that's like real growth-oriented, and that's where Ether and the other coins would come in as part of a longer-term growth allocation, disruptive tech innovation-type allocation, 
Uh, and that's how we're thinking about it in, in that perspective. Jeremy, before we move on here, you uh, open the door for me a little bit, and I'm going to barge through on this. You mentioned okay. the regulators taking their, their time uh, around crypto, and I'm not sure how much you can speak to this, but you know, going back to the crypto index and companies like OnRamp, you know I absolutely love the innovation in this space. And I think to what you were saying earlier, clearly this type of innovation is moving forward despite the regulators who have been slow to react, right? We still don't even have a, a spot Bitcoin ETF. And we don't need to have a, a, a big conversation around this topic uh, here today. But do you have any quick thoughts on where regulators are at on crypto and things like a spot Bitcoin ETF? I mean, are, are you optimistic, pessimistic, somewhere in between? Do you, do you feel like the innovation is just moving so fast in the space regulators can't keep up? Just what, what's your overall view here? Well, I think our interest in, in on-ramp and the, the SMAs is telling of, like, when do you think you'll get this, this full basket? It's going to be some time um, to be able to get a broad, diversified basket. And, and so I think that you definitely see us wanting to provide that exposure um, and looking for, for ways to do so. Uh, you know, we, we do believe the, a spot Bitcoin ETF is warranted. Um, you know, we didn't file for 100% futures. We believe in the 100% spot. You know, you, you mentioned some of the other funds where we did add futures, and so in a context of a commodity strategy, a managed future strategy, that's you know, rep, you know, buying other traditional futures, we think it makes a lot of sense, and we we have ability to go up to five percent in two different ETFs there. But for the 100%, that's not best in our view, and you know, we we do see other regulators in Europe were in the market with that, uh, with spot. And we, you know, we're institutional level due diligence. We fly to the places, have done the on-site due diligence on these custodians who are holding it, the encustoding the crypto for us in the ETF. So we're comfortable with that angle. And, you know, over time, we hope to be working with the regulators to make them more comfortable with that as well. You mentioned the Bitcoin futures ETF. So, of course, we, we got the first uh, futures ETFs last October. And as I mentioned at the top, which I'm not sure many people were aware of, Wisdom Tree actually had the first ETF to hold Bitcoin futures, ticker GCC, the Wisdom yep. Tree Enhanced Commodity Strategy Fund. I, I think that sort of got lost in the shuffle just with it all did. the hype, right, around the, the first uh, futures ETF getting approved. But do you want to talk a little bit more about GCC? You, you just yep. talked a little bit about the decision to own Bitcoin futures, but just talk a little bit more about that particular ETF. Well, thank you, Nate. So, I first of all, yes, we were the first ETF with Bitcoin futures, and it was three percent. And then you had the hundred percent ones come right after, um, and that's because we had been early to file for it. Uh, and we, you know, we had converted GCC from a traditional K one commodity fund to an active fund. And from the day we converted it, we were trying to get Bitcoin in it. Uh, obviously, we got some pushback, and so we had to convert it to the active strategy without Bitcoin. Uh, and and we, the way we worked on it, you know, we did fund that allocation from gold. So thinking about it very much like what I just said, is that the new generation's gold, we took 3% from our gold allocation, put it into the Bitcoin futures. Um, and so we do want to be a leader in providing access to commodities. I think commodities is one of our top themes for 2022, inflation. Uh, you know, if you talk to Professor Siegel, I've worked with for 20-plus years, he has been consistent. Um, for really well over a year, year and a half, that inflation was going to be a major theme. The Fed was not prepared. They're letting it run. And so commodities are one of the inflation solutions. Uh, and you know, now we are unique because it's an active fund. And you think about the index strategies and how slow they will probably be to add Bitcoin, even though it is a very sensible commodity diversification story. You know, being an active fund, you can do that. Um, there was a Barron's cover this weekend on commodities. You know, and they I talked about active funds 
to be able to be dynamic, and that's what we're showing with uh, the Bitcoin futures. And then just last week, if I'm not mistaken, your Managed Futures Strategy Fund, ticker WTMF, that also now holds Bitcoin yes. futures, correct? Right. So where GCC is long only, will be 100% allocated um, strategically, um, you know, we're not going to make all sorts of tactical changes there. I mean, it's sort of broad-based diversification to commodities. Managed Futures... Um, is more tactical in the sense that it's looking for long-term uptrends. Um, it's trying to make money in rising and falling markets, and so it will go long and short different commodities, currencies, equities, rates. It's not going to go short Bitcoin futures to start. You know, so we're not mm-hmm. going to hold direct Bitcoin here. Again, it's Bitcoin futures, um, and we can go up to five percent. We're we're at one and a half percent to start, which sort of reflects the recent pullbacks. You know, the the all the momentum signals aren't pointing higher right today. Um, but we do. Some of our momentum signals are pointing higher, and so we do have a position. Um, and you know, it could, that, that position could increase as the momentum signals turn more positive. Um, but it is a quantitative signal. Long flat is where it will be to start. And again, you know, this idea we we funded it from some of the other commodities allocations. It's it's approximately it can go up to forty percent equities, forty percent commodities. And then it's got ten percent uh, between currencies and rates. Uh, as as the other allocations. And again, it's sort of dynamic trend-following type strategies that that determine if you're long, short, or flat. Uh, Just a couple minutes left. You mentioned uh, inflation earlier, some of the concerns around that, and potentially commodities as a hedge. I want to ask you about this most recent launch uh, from Wisdom Tree. This came out in December. The Efficient Gold Plus Gold Miner Strategy Fund, ticker GDMN, I do think some investors obviously view gold as an inflation hedge, and this is offering price exposure there as well as exposure to miners. Uh, Do you want to quickly explain this one? And in particular, I'm interested in this idea of return stacking. For sure. This has been one of the hottest topics uh, for Wisdom Tree the last three years. Um, you know, we had a lot of success with our original capital efficient idea, NTSX, which is is knocking on the door. It crossed a billion right before the pullback, but it, it's sort of right under a billion dollars today. But we had launched international and emerging markets versions of that, which are sort of core equity bond combinations of 90-60 for a levered 60-40. Actually, just did a, a nice Twitter piece on that today, on the on the sort of strategic case for 90-60 in stock bond combinations. And as we thought about, like, what are other interesting combinations of assets, the idea of capital efficiency is putting up a certain amount of money and getting more for your money. So you put up a dollar in the gold miner strategy that we launched today, we're getting a dollar eighty of total exposure, 90 cents of gold futures and 90 cents of gold miners. You think about when you bought gold. I mean, I, when I bought gold, I bought both gold miners and gold. A lot of people do the exact same thing. So instead of having to put up twice as much capital to get that exposure, you could put up less capital to get that exposure. And so for people who are buying gold and gold miners together, now you can do it in one trade, not separately. And then you just have more capital to use in, in other places. That was the idea between the stock and bonds, is to add more room for diversifiers and alts. Uh, that's becoming more and more timely with inflation and the, and the volatility we're seeing in the market. And now we're doing it with gold, and we, we have filings for other gold overlays as well. And I think this is going to be an innovation area for ETS, we're certainly putting a lot of energy behind the capital efficient family now on a core basis and, and with the miners more tactical as well. In terms of the risk profile of an ETF like this, and, and the same could hold true for NTSX, which you mentioned, but effectively with this gold futures exposure, you have leverage embedded. And so I'm, I'm curious, 
how should investors think about the risk? I mean, is the idea here you're taking a smaller allocation than you otherwise would, and so your risk profile yes. essentially stays the same? J- just explain that. For sure. I mean, so the idea is, if in, in my piece today on the, just going back to the efficient core with his stocks and bonds, you know, the people question, like, when will it disappoint? Well, if you're adding it, if you're selling an S&P 500 type strategy and buying our efficient core, all you're doing there is you're lowering your equity beta 10 cents from 90 cents to 10. You know, you're going, you have 90 cents of equities for every dollar. So you have a little bit of lower equity risk, but you have 60 cents of bond futures risk. So when bonds rise, you know, bond yields rise, you know, and bond values decline, you're going to have that hit there. So you're just adding bond futures if you're, if you're replacing a traditional S&P 500. But the idea is that you're replacing both stocks and bonds, so you're using it to sub in equity and bond beta, and then it's a matter of what do you do with that freed-up capital. You know, so in a technical, if you use it for, if you just had a 60-40 portfolio, you can get 66 cents of this, and you have 33 cents of something else to do whatever else you want. So it really becomes what else do you do with that freed-up capital, that extra 33 cents, where does it go? What did those diversifiers do? Um, and so, you know, technically, if you had, you know, $5 in gold, you know, you could do five divided by 1.8, right? So a little bit over less than $3 in gold to get the same type of exposure, exposure in that gold miner strategy. Uh, and so it really is about, you know, putting less capital to work to get the same exposure versus just levering up your returns. That's well, the idea. Well, Jeremy, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, congrats on the launch of GDMN and, and all the success you're having at Wisdom Tree. Creep, keep up the uh, great work on the crypto space. I, I, I absolutely love what you're doing there. Thank you for joining me this week. A lot of fun. Thanks, Nate. That was Jeremy Schwartz, Global Chief Investment Officer at Wisdom Tree. With yields at historic lows, investors will need to seek alternatives to the traditional approaches. That's where the NASDAQ Dorsey Wright Target Distribution approach can help. Using a broadly diversified allocation to U.S. equities, bonds, and non-traditional investments, the strategy targets a consistent 7% annualized distribution while preserving principal and without reaching for yield. Learn more at strategysharesetfs.com. I'm now joined by Wade Gunther, partner at Wilshire Phoenix, who currently offers one ETF that launched earlier last year, which we'll discuss, but they're planning on aggressively ramping up their ETF business and also looking to become a player in the crypto fund space. And I should note that Wade is no rookie to the ETF space, Uh, has over two decades experience in the industry, was previously a portfolio manager at Global X ETFs, uh, was global ETF strategist and portfolio manager at Horizon ETFs before that. And he's now on the line with me from New York. Wade, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's really great to be here. Thank you for having us. All right, so let's start with the one ETF you do currently offer, because I feel like once we get talking to crypto and, and Bitcoin ETFs, the clock's going to uh, move fast on us. So the W Shares Enhanced Gold Trust, ticker WGLD, love that ticker, by the way, this seeks to outperform a standalone investment in physical gold. Take us from there. What's uh, going on underneath the hood? Sure. Uh, okay, so the W Shares Enhanced Gold ETF was was really created on the premise that um, we, we wanted to bring institutional strategies and institutional innovation to 
retail investors to kind of help benefit them. Because typically these kinds of strategies, this algorithmic based type of strategy was typically reserved for high net worth and accredited investors. So bring it to a retail landscape to, to benefit retail investors was, was really um, the precipice behind this. So underneath the hood is a set of rules that are built into the underlying index, which is the W shares gold index. And WGLV allocates its gold exposure based on what the index determines through those underlying uh, algorithms. So there's a multi-step process. So first, the index will calculate realized volatility of physical gold using the LBMA PM fixing over the previous 45 days. Now, if physical gold volatility is low, the index will increase its gold exposure up to 100%, and then the, the rebalance is determined. It rebalances monthly, and that, that's it. However, if physical gold volatility is high, the index will likely reduce the gold allocation below 100%. This is where it gets a little more interesting. At that point, if the gold volatility is high, the index calculates the realized volatility of the S&P 500 over that very same 45-day look-back period uh, as the physical gold. And if the S&P 500 volatility is low, that the, the allocation, the, the, the reduction of, of gold allocation will, will, remain, will remain the same. Uh, as with that high gold volatility scenario. But if the S&P 500 volatility is high, the index will likely increase that gold allocation it just reduced, even though the gold volatility is high. And it's really because empirical evidence suggests that investors have tended to rotate towards gold as a safe haven during volatile equity markets. So increasing that gold exposure during the volatile equity markets was built in. And the relationship is non-linear, so that magnitude of physical gold and, and S&P 500 of volatility will, will definitely affect the, the gold allocation. And so how do you see WGLD being used in a portfolio? Is this a, a replacement for something like a, a physical gold ETF allocation? I mean, we believe WGLD can be a core physical gold holding in a portfolio because it, it only holds physical gold and cash. Other gold ETFs, are either one beta or future futures based, which are great, but they don't really manage risk. Gold, like any investment, is not immune to, to volatility. And WGLD's adaptive exposure is a risk managed solution with the objective of outperforming, outperforming a standalone or that one beta physical gold position. And, and GLD, IAU, those are great products. They were really innovative, innovative for their time. But it's just like going from a, an iPod to Spotify. It's, this is just the next evolution of uh, a gold investment. And it's something that could be a core, uh, co- a core position. And with WGLD, it, it, the objective of outperforming standalone gold, it's not trying to shoot the lights out by any means. Like it doesn't use derivatives, leverage or, leverage or futures to make big bets or anything like that. The adaptive exposure essentially reduces gold weight during volatile gold markets in attempt to preserve the capital, then take that 
preserved capital and reinvest it when markets are more favorable and the gold markets, um, the conditions suggest that it should reinvest it. So over long periods of time, this strategy has the opportunity to outperform that, that standalone position in gold. Obviously, this ETF is rule, uh, rules-based, so it takes away that uh, you know, human decision-making component. But do you have any strong views on gold right now? I, I, I've got to tell you, I've talked a lot recently about what I view as very odd behavior from gold. I would have expected it to perform much better in an environment where interest rates are still low, but uh, inflation concerns are, 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 are certainly high or moving higher. Any thoughts on what's been going on with gold? This is an interesting topic, and we've, we've talked about this uh, a, a lot lately, and gold being down somewhere around 3% in 2021, I think a lot of investors really expected big gains with year-over-year inflation being rather significant from, I believe it was April through, through the rest of the year. And I just think that inflation is considered only one gold price driver, right? We believe that interest rates and the USD had more meaningful influences on gold prices in 2021. So like the 10-year had a big move last year, going from below 1% to ending the year somewhere around 1.5%. At least three rate hikes are expected in 2022. I think you know, we view investors positioning their portfolios to, to capitalize on higher yield expectations. So that means maybe selling assets such as gold to rotate into assets with a higher required rate of return, required rate of return. So these higher yield expectations, you know, we believe it's pricing in some of the higher U.S. dollar, uh, you know, moving higher uh, in, in 2022. And we have seen higher U.S. dollar making gold more expensive in cross-currency terms. And this could depress gold prices even further in 2022. But on the other side of that, which we, we really see as, as, uh, as an upside for gold, is that central banks typically increase their gold positions as a hedge against rising USD. So there's, there's interesting ways that, that this could go. It really has a lot to do with the magnitude and the correlations between these price drivers and gold prices that are really the big unknowns for 2022. All right, before we move on, because I do want to talk uh, Bitcoin ETFs. So you have WGLD. What can you tell us about the overall uh, ETF roadmap for Wilshire Phoenix moving forward? What type of ETF presence are you uh, hoping to carve out? Well, okay, so first of all, we see the ETF industry in general having having a significant growth trajectory for a number of years. So we believe that the ETF wrapper in general is a superior way to, to, to deliver financial innovation. And I mean, Wilshire was born with the ambition that everyone deserves equal access to financial services that empowers people to build better lives for themselves and their families. So we see or we value inclusion by bringing in these often reserved institutional investment strategies to all investors. So I think that is really where our white space is going to be. We're going to bring these institutional strategies to to, to everybody. And even with WGLD, we're a relatively new firm with only one product so far, and the industry has been taking notice. We, um, we were nominated for seven ETF industry awards in the last year, and there's a, not a lot of ETF sponsors that, that can make them, that claim. So we believe that our, our white space is, is, 
is untapped and we're looking forward to bringing some of those institutional strategies to to the market fairly soon. All right. So you, you mentioned the term white space. Let's talk spot Bitcoin ETF. There's clearly some white space there if and when the SEC gets comfortable. And let, let me set the table with this. So a few years ago, Wilshire had what I thought was a very interesting filing. This was for a Bitcoin and Treasury ETF. And I, I thought this was an innovative approach because the SEC was clearly still uncomfortable with a 100% spot ETF product, right? And so Wilshire was attempting to introduce treasuries into the mix, I think, to try and dampen the Bitcoin exposure and volatility. But the SEC disapproved that ETF back in February of 2020. And I, I've got to tell you, Wade, I always remember the sharp response to the SEC from the Wilshire team. And I, I actually want to read two quotes here. These are from Will Herman, co-founder of Wilshire. So he said, quote, The SEC has created a test for Bitcoin-related ETPs that is clearly inconsistent with the Exchange Act. He also said, quote, The commission has done a great disservice to the public by rejecting this application. And, of course, now here we are in, uh, in 2022, still no spot Bitcoin ETF. What's your take on the current positioning of the SEC, which apparently hasn't changed much over the past few years? Okay, well, let, let me just kind of give you a little bit more of the backstory with, with all of that. So Wilshire Phoenix was formed in 2018, and, and as you had mentioned, we started work on our first product, which was the Bitcoin ETF. And again, disapproved in February 2020 after a couple of years of back and forth. I mean, we really tried hard with this. We met with the SEC staff, individual commissioners, their corporation finance division. And it, our work really trailblazed many of the arguments and the analysis that a lot of ETF sponsors use as the backbone of their spot Bitcoin ETF filings. And as you cited our disapproval letter and quotes by Bill, uh, it's it's something that I can't really comment on because I wasn't there and, and, and to, to really gauge uh, the context of, of the quote or, or any, of, any of the discussions. But what I will say is new spot Bitcoin applications really haven't gone any further than what we had originally, so they're still being rejected. So uh, we do think that is... Uh, we decided to wait after February 2020 to see who won the U.S. federal election and what was what changes were going to happen within the SEC. So once we saw that Gensler was, uh, you know, uh, elected to the the position of the head uh, the head of the SEC, being uh, someone who came from an investment banking background, teaching blockchain at MIT. I mean, this might have some some bearing on a Bitcoin spot Bitcoin ETF being approved, but this didn't happen. We we thought that this was going to be you know a, a little a little bit more breakthroughish for the the spot Bitcoin, but it di it didn't really ha happen. It seems to be that Gensler is being more conservative, and I mean he's like the head of the the largest top financial regulator, so you know we we understand the position. And in terms of our spot uh, Bitcoin 
uh, filing, it, it's still under review, and we just trust and respect that process, and we, we just can't really comment on that any further. And just to be clear, you mentioned the spot uh, filing. As I understand it, you, you currently have a filing for the W Shares Bitcoin Commodity Trust. And in looking at this, I, I believe this would be structured similar to the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, ticker GBTC, but not have that six-month lockup period. Uh, so theoretically, this could be more efficient in mitigating premiums and discounts. It would also have a lower fee. But to be clear, are, are we talking the same filings or is that a different filing from the, the, the other filing you just mentioned? The filing back in 2018, that was... Yeah, that was a treasury ETF, right? Bitcoin and trade. Okay. Right. And this filing that's out there... Go ahead. This is a separate filing altogether. Okay. And and where does that currently stand? Again, it's under review with the SEC. And again, counsel has advised us not to talk about that. (laughs) Fair enough. Let, Let me ask you this. So, you know, the refrain we keep hearing from the SEC on why they are not approving a spot Bitcoin ETF is uh, these concerns around fraud and manipulation in the underlying spot market, right? That's what they keep coming back to. In order to resolve that, I mean, does this come down to having a regulatory framework put in place across crypto exchanges? I mean, that, that just seems like something that could take a long time to, to get put in place. I, I, I've got to tell you, I'm just not optimistic that this is something we'll even see in 2022. We may be a, a, a couple, few years out from getting that in place. I, I'm just curious. I mean, do you think that is a valid concern? And then how, how is that rectified? Does it come down to regulating the underlying exchanges? Uh, we believe regulation is, I don't really don't want to call it a concern. I think regulation is just something that is necessary in order to protect investors, right? Like that's what the SEC is all about, right? It's uh, it's making sure that investor protections and efficient markets are facilitated and and orderly. And regulation is the is the basis for that, so that everybody is really abiding by the same rules. And we we fully support that, and and it's great. And it's just is going to take a long time, in our opinion, for the regulation to be thought out well enough in order for it to be correct because this isn't something like stocks or bonds that are have like a long history and are well known the bitcoin is relatively new to the investment landscape and is purely digital and just has different ways of functioning in the in in the market than than something like stocks or or bonds again that have that history so it just we believe it's going to take a long time for the regulation to really get get it right and 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 that's why 2022 i just personally don't see a spot bitcoin etf being a, approved or uh it's not the word isn't approved is it's uh i can't think of it right now but it's i don't think a spot bitcoin etf is going to be launched in 2022 well, Wade, with that, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, great connecting. I certainly wish you all the success as you build out the ETF business and, and certainly look forward to connecting again down the road. Thank you for joining me. Appreciate it. Thank you. That was Wade Gunther, partner at Wilshire Phoenix. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, 
really excited about this. I'll be joined by the legendary Jim Ross, who of course was involved with the launch of the very first ETF, the Spider S&P 500 ETF. That ETF actually turns 29 next week, so uh, look forward to that conversation. And then Diamond Standards' Cormac Kenny is going to discuss his efforts to bring a physically-backed diamond ETF to market. Until then, have a great week, everyone.